Our passage this morning is taken from Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and, un and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thanks. You may be seated. Team, thank you so much for leading us uh, musically to worship God this morning. Um, what a joy to hear from our kids, huh? Have them lead us musically to worship God. Worship comes in a variety of forms. Uh, music is one of them. Uh, hearing God's word preached is one. Praying is one. Coming together as a church to worship with you is an incredibly powerful experience. I still have chills just from hearing our mixed voices singing together. We'll praise your name forever with hearts that actually mean it. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? I just got to tell you, being part of this church has been a moving experience for me. This is the last couple of weeks. In our, our own church family, we've had uh, a number of people dealing with significant heartaches in 2019. It was, it was a hard year for a lot of us who are doing life together and loving God together. Uh, just even this last week, we buried a young man who was part of our church family and died way too soon. And just to, to see the number of people in our church that came together to be Jesus with skin on, you might say. Uh, so many people came in from out of town for that funeral and that memorial service, some from California, some all the way from the East Coast, and, and they were just sitting here, and so many of our church members just connected in a heartfelt way and loved them the way Jesus loves them. We don't know who you are, but we're so glad you're here because we have the hope of Christ. And getting to see that with my own eyes and watch you guys be who God has made you to be as his church was just a powerful experience. And then to come together this morning and sing about the birth of Christ um, I got to tell you, I'm excited to be here this morning because I need some hope and I know where to find it. And I don't know if you can relate to that at all, but that's what we're here to do this morning. My name is Matt. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here uh, and one of our elders here at the church. And we're just very glad that you are here with us. And I hope that if you're a regular at Harvest uh, or maybe if you're not normally part of our fellowship, we are glad you're here either way. And I hope you get a taste for what hope looks like when God invades the lives of people and pulls them together by his grace to transform our lives this morning. It's a good thing to be together as God's family. Um, as we get into the passage of scripture that you just heard read uh, a few minutes ago, um, I had an experience of being sort of part of the family, as it were, and being welcomed back into the family here at Harvest after having been gone for a while. A couple of years ago, I took a sabbatical, um, 
you as a congregation graciously gave me a summer off after having served here for 10 years. And so uh, I was kind of away from the office and away from normal church life for a while, recharging, which was good, but I was excited to come back. And so I come back at the end of being gone for several months and all, I, like my to-do list was off the charts, right? I couldn't, couldn't even begin to think about all the things I needed to do. And uh, I knew that, that the rest of the church staff had been working very hard in my absence to take care of things. In fact, I I knew they had been working hard because when I walked into my office the first day after being gone for three months, uh, my entire desk was artfully wallpapered with post-it notes. <laughs> Color-coordinated, not a single gap in between them. Um, the, the staff was using their time very productively while I was away. Uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Actually, they did a phenomenal job, almost to get a job. They're like, we don't need you. Go away. We're fine. Um, did a great job taking care of things, but it was fun to walk in and see the surprises. One of the surprises, too, was that my desk chair in my office was missing, and in its place was a little envelope with a little note in it that said something about my desk chair being held for ransom, and if I wanted to ever see it again, I was going to have to do what they wanted, and so off started this scavenger hunt for my officer. I'm like, oh, those guys are so fun and so creative and I don't feel like I have time for this because I'm kind of wound tight and I'm all task-oriented. I'm like, I got to get to work. And so I'm like, all right, I got to go find my office chair at some point, but, but not today. So I just like grabbed a temporary chair and just started going to work or something. And then, and then like I get into my thing because that's what I get into. I get plowing in and I get sort of tunnel vision and I get blasting through my to-do list and a day goes by and two days go by and sometime like late that first week I'm still sitting in like a metal folding chair or something at my <laughs> at my desk and none of them are going to help me. They're like you got to go find it you know and suddenly out of the blue I don't even remember why this happened now this was a few years ago but I just had this like flash of a thought. I'm like I wonder now and, and we are, our office wing is over here to my right and your left. And, and off on one kind of closet in my, in my office is where all the tech stuff is, like the computer hub and the phone equipment. It just lives in a little closet back there that like nobody ever goes into unless you need to fix something that's broken, right? And I just went, nah. And I pulled out my key and opened the door, and there was my desk chair. <laughs> like those turkeys were going to send me on a scavenger hunt all over the place just to lead me right back to my office. And I found it, and I was like, yay, I can actually not sit too low on my desk. I can sit, you know in the right chair, and so I went back to work, and then I actually kind of started feeling a little bit guilty about it, because they'd put a lot of work into this, and I just skipped right to the end. I, I told, it was total luck, I just lucked into it, but I sort of skipped all the work, and then I sort of felt a little bad. I, there were over a dozen clues, I don't now remember how many clues there were, but I, like, I never went and found them, and I can remember twice in the following months that somebody, one of you, would come up to me like on a Sunday and say, yeah, I found this weird piece of paper up in a classroom upstairs, it's got like the number seven on it and some cryptic words, does this mean anything? And I'm like, yeah. That means something. <laughs> that means I was supposed to go find that last month. Where did you find that again? Oh, back in the dumpster. You know, I don't know, whatever. They, were, they would have sent me all over the place. But I got to jump to the end of the scavenger hunt. Uh, I tell that story because when you need hope at Christmas, uh, if you know the Bible, you know where to go. You, you go to the manger. You go to Jesus being born. You go to God being with us. But going there, when you get to Matthew chapter 1, and you read that story, is a lot like jumping into the end of a scavenger hunt. Um, 
Matthew, one of Jesus' original uh, disciples who is writing this account for us, puts this passage together in a way in, intentionally um, to, to point out that, 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 that Jesus' birth, he, he links it up with the larger story of the Bible, and he desperately wants us as readers to understand that. That, that, that God had promised um, many, many uh, centuries before that he was going to send a Savior, and he had given... <laughs> clues about it. That's actually not that bad a term. He would reveal a little bit more information and then years would go by and then he'd reveal a little bit more and people kept waiting and waiting. When is the Savior going to come? And Matthew links the birth of Jesus up into that story. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to turn them to Matthew chapter 1, very first chapter in the New Testament. This story is narrated from Joseph's point of view and it begins with Joseph making an unexpected discovery. Actually, in fairly quick order, there are two unexpected discoveries, uh, the second far more jarring and jolting than the first. We pick the story up in the first three verses, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child, we are told as readers, from the Holy Spirit. We know this, Joseph does not yet. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph's first unexpected discovery is that the, the woman he is betrothed to, which was an, a legal arrangement back then in that culture, it's like more intense than just being engaged today, but it's not quite yet fully being married. Uh, they haven't come together, they're not living together, they're not experiencing sexual relations together, but they are committed to each other, and in order to break that relationship, you have to go through a legal divorce. So he's betrothed to this young woman that he believes is uh, being faithful to him and discovers that she's pregnant. And he thinks what all the rest of us would think. Um, this is a major taboo in that culture. That's, that's not okay because Joseph knows he's not the father. And so he assumes that she's been unfaithful to him. Doubtless disappointed and perhaps even feeling somewhat betrayed, he nonetheless decides that he's going to end the relationship in such a way as to cause the least amount of shame and ridicule for Mary as possible. So his first unhappy and unexpected discovery was, wow, he thinks, she's been unfaithful to me and this marriage is not going to work out. But that is immediately followed on the heels by the second and even more shocking unexpected discovery and that comes via the announcement of an angel. Um, very unusual occurrence, even in the Bible, that an angel will show up and speak to people. Uh, that just doesn't happen every day. It didn't happen every day back then either. This is a massive shock. And the angel in verse 20 tells Joseph what we as readers were already told back in verse 18. Yes, indeed, Mary is pregnant, but it's not because of any unfaithfulness on her part. Her pregnancy can't be attributed to any man. It is a miracle of God. So twice in just the first three verses, we are explicitly told she is pregnant as a direct act of God's Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural miracle. The Bible does not want us to miss that point. Meaning what? Meaning God is at work here. God is the initiator of this whole thing. Um, neither Mary nor Joseph asked for this. 
Uh, They were otherwise nondescript peasant people. We have no reason to think that they were special or could have expected this. They weren't looking for this, nor had they done anything to earn this treatment from God. It just happens from their perspective out of the blue. But that raises a really important question. Is this really out of the blue? That's what it looked like and felt like to them. That's how it strikes us initially as we're reading the Bible and getting this account. It raises the critical question like, Okay, so if God is behind this, then why is God doing this? What is he up to here? Why is he doing this? And why is he doing this at this time with these people? What are we supposed to understand about ourselves and God from all of this? And the rest of these several verses, Matthew writes them in a way that's designed to answer that question. He wants us to know not just the facts of what happened. He actually says very little about the facts. He just happens to mention she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And he eventually mentions in passing, oh, by the way, the child was born. Most of the account focuses not on the events. It focuses on what's going on behind the events. Why is this taking place? And in writing that narrative, Matthew puts puts it together in a way that links the miracle of Jesus' conception with the larger story of the Bible. So, like clues in a scavenger hunt, if I can press that analogy a little far, he's going to go back and say, you've got to understand as a reader how this event links back to previous things that were said. That's what's so important about getting the whole story. In fact, this passage answers that question, why is God doing this, kind of at, at two levels, or maybe two sides of the same coin. The first level is it answers it by telling us this is not an isolated event, even though it looked and felt out of the blue. It's not. It's actually linked up to the larger story of the Bible. This is what God has been doing all along. So that partly explains why this is happening now. Readers of the Bible will realize this was not unexpected. That's what the Bible wants us to see. But there's a deeper level at which this passage answers the question, why is God doing that? And that is the level of God's, God's motives. God's motives. I mean, it's one thing to say, like, okay, God had this plan that's been going on for a long time, and I'm going to show you how this event fits into that plan. Oh, okay, well, at least now I know the event's not random. But, but still, like, why is God doing this? Like, what's God's heart in this whole thing? And what does that say about who he is and about us? All those questions are answered in this passage. Let's, let's look at both answers in turn. First of all, why is God doing this? Well, again, Matthew links it back to past Uh, major events that took place in God's overarching plan. And and what is that plan? What is that plan? From the Bible's opening pages, it makes God's plan clear. It's to reestablish relationship between God and us. Sinful, rebellious humanity. We were made, the Bible tells us, for relationship with God. And we struggle and we suffer when we don't have it. That's where pain and suffering and death come from, being cut off from God, the source of life. You know, we we feel many needs throughout the course of our lives, legitimate ones. We may feel we need a job, a steady income. We need a cure. Maybe we feel we need a happy home life that has so long eluded us. Sometimes we feel like we need a vacation. Other times we feel like we need someone to love us. There are times we feel like we just need a reason to get out of bed today. There are so many needs that we all feel. 
And every one of those things I just mentioned at times are actually real. Those are real needs. And yet the Bible insists that though, though real, those needs are not ultimate. They're not ultimate. They're not the deepest thing you and I need. Our deepest need, according to the Bible, is to be relationally connected with God in a way that runs deep and is personal. All our other needs and pains ultimately spring from this deepest need going unfulfilled. And so the Bible opens up with God starting to embark on fixing this deepest need and addressing that very problem. Um, The Bible opens with the tragic account of how Adam and Eve essentially told God to get lost. Like that's how this whole thing started. Uh, Choosing to decide for themselves what's best and how to serve their own interests according to what they believed rather than submitting to God. And the Bible says we've been doing it ever since. And like the third chapter of the Bible, I mean, we've barely passed like the title page, right? We're just getting started. And the third chapter of the Bible ends with the tragic account of of humanity expelled from God's presence and unable to get back to the paradise that is his love. We chose it, we suffer for it, and now the Bible tells us we're living a life, all of us, in one form or another, in which we're trying to find fulfillment apart from being closely connected to God, a process that we find is as futile as trying to breathe in a room that has no more oxygen in it. If it's just full of nitrogen, your, your lungs will fill with atmosphere, but you will be suffocating. And so we live our life yearning for satisfaction, but ultimately suffocating because what we need is God. And as the Bible story goes on, God strikes a note of hope. He promises that he himself will fix the problem that we've caused. He will pursue reconciliation with us. Uh, we've alluded to Exodus up here on the slides. As a, as a church, we've been walking through the Old Testament book, of Exodus. And we've already seen like God get a start on this plan where he's walking toward rebellious people trying to reestablish a close relationship with them. God initiates the salvation of his people in Exodus and then he brings them to Mount Sinai where as we saw just last Sunday his goal is to bring his people close to him to experience his presence in a transformative way so that they would love him and serve him faithfully and enjoy him forever the way it was always meant to be. That's God's aim. That's his goal. That's what's driving him. But we also saw a problem last week, didn't we? If you were here last Sunday, you remember that. The problem is that God is holy. He's holy. And and sinful man cannot be in his presence without being struck dead as a result When God approached in thunder and earthquake and fire upon Mount Sinai, the people of Israel said, whoa, we want nothing to do with that. They didn't run toward him. They cowered back in fear, despite the fact that he'd already saved them and they knew from experience he was on their side. He was for them, but they wanted nothing to do with him. And so we asked last Sunday the question I think the Bible poses for us, what do you do when the unapproachable approaches? How do you handle that? That's one of the burning questions that drives the entire Old Testament. If God is the one seeking to reconcile with us, then he's approaching us, but he's unapproachable. So where does that leave us? And you know, you, you never really get a full and complete satisfying answer out of the entire Old Testament. You do get an answer. The, the answer in Exodus is that, well, they're going to need a mediator, Right? Here's God, here's his people, and because they can't be close, somebody's going to have to be, serve as like a go-between. Um, and, and of course, initially, that was Moses himself. He was the go-between. 
between God and his people. And then as Exodus goes on, we'll see that there was a whole system of priests that get established and religious rules and laws that they had to follow and a tabernacle building that gets built. There's all these mediating structures between God and his people. So God has a relationship with his people, yes, but it's, it's, it's buffered through all of these mediating structures. It's a little bit like a distance relationship. Everybody ever tried, anybody ever tried one of those? Dating somebody, or, or, or maybe even if you're married, like if you're uh, married to a spouse who's deployed in the military or something, you're trying to maintain a relationship at a distance. My bride, Amy, and I did that for a couple of years when we were dating in college. Uh, we were both natives of the California Bay Area, and uh, I stayed there for college. She went to Southern California for school, and then we started dating one another, so most of the year we're separated by 650 miles of space. And we're kind of living two different lives in two different schools. And this was before like, everybody was carrying one of these things like, around in your back pocket, right? So this is before smartphones. It's actually before um, cell phones at all. It's before you know, ubiquitous email, and it's before social media. It's before texting. And right now, everybody under 25 is like, were you around when they invented the light bulb too? I mean... <laughs> No, I'm not that old, people. Technology's just changed fast, right? Right? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Need a little help here. This is not going well. Um, <laughs> point being, communicating was a little rough back then. So what did we do? It's like we're, we're dating this kind of relationship. It's getting kind of serious, but with 650 miles, what do we do? So what we did was we wrote letters with pen and paper. It was weird. We licked these things and stuck them on envelopes and they magically appeared in Southern California a couple days later. It was crazy. We actually used snail mail and then we would call each other long distance landlines when you had to pay by the minute for long distance. You all remember that? And it was expensive. <laughs> and we're poor college students, so we're like taking turns. Okay, I'll call you this week, you call me next week, you know? We get on the phone, you can finally talk in real time with somebody, but eventually like, oh my goodness, we've been on the phone for, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes or whatever. I gotta hang up because I gotta, you know. So you're always rushed. Did we have a relationship? Sure. Sure, we did. And we looked forward to each phone call and we looked forward to each letter. But, but it was buffered by the distance and the lack of communication. It was buffered by the lack of shared experiences. It was so much better the few times I would go down for a weekend and visit her at her school. Or she would come home for summer break and we could actually talk as long as we wanted without a, a clock or a big bill coming at the end of the month. Um, we could, we could do things together rather than just talk about the things that we were doing separate, you know? Yes, we had a relationship, but it was buffered by distance and it was so much better to be close. That's kind of where God was at with his people at this point. It's not a full reconciliation yet, but God promised one day he'd send a better mediator, a true and greater Moses who would actually reconcile his people to himself. Now that brings us back to Matthew chapter 1 because I want us to notice a couple things that happen in this passage. First of all, in verse 20, when the angel first addresses Joseph, notice what he calls him. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. As he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Stop right there. Why does the angel call him Joseph, son of David? Does that mean Joseph's dad was named David? <laughs> no. That's not the case. He's referring to King David, who was a distant ancestor of Joseph's, but King David had lived a thousand years earlier. David was long dead and long gone. So why does he not just call him Joseph the carpenter? 
or Joseph from Nazareth, which is where he was born, or not just, hey, Joseph. Why Joseph, son of David, descendant of David? And the reason is because the angel is preparing Joseph for what he's about to hear. He's about to tell him something that links up with his ancestry and a promise that God had made to King David a thousand years earlier. He's taking him back earlier on the scavenger hunt and surfacing a clue. You see, if we go several hundred years past Moses' time, we finally meet a king named David. David was a savior figure sent from God to rule over his people and under David's leadership. The ancient Israelites achieved the greatest measure of national security and wealth and peace in the promised land that that they had ever known. But, like Moses, David, um, the Bible is honest about David's own sins and failings. Uh, He was not, as some in his day had hoped, the true and greater Moses who was promised who would reconcile his people to God. Instead, God actually tells David that one of his descendants would reign on the throne forever, not just for a lifetime, but forever. A true and greater David. And so when the angel says to Joseph, hey, son of David, listen to what I'm going to say. He's saying, this is going back to God's promise to send a true and greater Moses, a true and greater David. And he takes him back to one more clue that he wants us to understand as readers. If you keep reading verse 21, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And then now the Bible adds this narrative comment. This is just for us. This isn't what the angel said. But he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The last stop on the journey that, that Matthew, as the author, is explicit about is he points out a prophecy from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. If we're thinking about David, you fast forward now another 400 years or so of history, and we meet a prophet named Isaiah. He's living at a time when the Israelite kingdom is in shambles, and God seems further away than he's ever been. It's hard to believe those old promises that he was going to reconcile us. But through Isaiah, God told the Israelite king at the time that God wouldn't let his people get wiped out by the invading armies of their enemies, but that he would reconcile his people to himself just as he had kept promising. And so he says in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 in the Old Testament, he will give a surefire sign that his long-promised salvation is at hand when it finally comes. And the sign is this, a young virgin woman will conceive and give birth to a son. When you see that supernatural event take place, there's your surefire sign that you're getting to the end of the clues and you finally found the thing that you've been on the hunt for for so long. And in Matthew chapter 1, the Bible's telling us as readers, the birth of Jesus is finally that. You fast forward 600 more years past Isaiah's time and we land in Matthew 1 where we meet a peasant couple nondescript by the names of Joseph and Mary. And in verse 23, the Bible is, it's just like it's, it's bluntly stating the point so that we just don't miss what it's trying to say. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken. All this business about a miraculous conception of a child for Mary is neither a random nor isolated incident. It may have felt that way. It may, not, it may have seemed to have come out of left field. It may not be clear what that has to do with anything in my life. 
God says, let me show you. It has everything to do with everything I'm doing in human history. This is the peak of God's plan to reconcile us to himself. This is the final answer to the dilemma of what do we do when we're approached by the unapproachable. This is Christmas. So the first answer to the question, what is, why is God doing this, is because, well, it's part of, it's the grand finale, in fact, to his history-defining plan to reunite us with himself. But there's another answer. There's another answer on the other side of that coin. And it's the level of, of motive and heart. After all, it's one thing to explain the miracle of Jesus' conception being part of a larger plan. That explains it at one level. Oh, okay, I get it. This has been happening all along, whether we understood it or not. That makes sense. But the question still kind of remains at another level. Yeah, but why is God doing this? Why is he pursuing reconciliation? Why does he keep pursuing it over and over and over again? Century after century, when his people continue to fail, continue to sin, continue to love lesser things more than they love him. In other words, what is God's heart in all of this? What motivates him? And this passage answers that too. You see that most clearly in the names that are given to the baby. Curiously, there are two, not just one. The first name we find in verse 21. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The first name the baby is given in this passage is the one that we know him by, Jesus. Jesus comes from a Hebrew word that simply means Yahweh saves. And we know from the Old Testament, Yahweh is the proper name for God in the Bible. So Jesus basically means God saves. It's interesting that in biblical times, some cultures actually still do this today, but it was very common that children would be named to reflect the reality that was going on around them at the time of their birth. Uh, We just saw an example of that a couple of weeks ago where Moses, way back in Exodus chapter 18, named his younger son Eliezer, which is a Hebrew word meaning God is my help, because he was born at the time that God was parting the Red Sea and helping the Israelites escape from Egypt. So he names his son, God is my help, because you were born at the time God was helping us. Well, here, Jesus' birth signals like, what is God doing at this moment? He's saving. He's saving. For all, from all sin, for all eternity, everyone who will repent and believe. His name is Yahweh saves because that's what Yahweh is doing. That's what God is doing in Jesus' birth. And he's doing it because it's who he is. He is a saving God. And so he bears the name God saves. You see, the Bible tells us God isn't pursuing us and continuing to come uh, to pursue reconciliation with us because we deserve it or because we did our part, we met him halfway, so he'll meet us the other half. We scratched his back, he'll scratch ours. We followed his rules first, and so he'll give us the right reward. None of that is the case. He's coming after us to save us because it's his core nature. It doesn't actually have anything to do with us. It has everything to do with him. This is just the kind of God the Bible insists that God is. He is a saver. He's a reconciler. He is a lover of his people. So he pursues you and I relentlessly for reconciliation. And we see that fleshed out even more in the second name that's given to this baby, which is drawn from the prophecy he quoted in Isaiah. 
Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is another Hebrew word. And as Matthew is writing this in the first century, he takes pains to translate the word Emmanuel for anybody reading it who might not know Hebrew, which means God with us. Like it's stated almost bluntly, I don't want you to miss what this is all saying about who God is and how that impacts us. Emmanuel is another name. It's a Hebrew word meaning God is is with us. God is with us. Each one of those three words, God with us, is worth pondering and thinking about at Christmas time. Let's take a moment and reflect on each one as we come toward the the end of our passage. First of all, God with us. Jesus' birth, the Bible says, is God with us. Make no mistake, this this is not the birth of another man. Not even a specially wise or great man. Not even the birth of a particularly spiritual or charismatic or even anointed man. This is God. One of the central claims of Christianity has always been that Jesus is God come down into human flesh. He himself is the true and greater Moses, the true and greater David, because he actually is greater than Moses or David or anybody else ever could be. Because he is God himself. Only God could fix the magnitude of what is wrong with us. Not even a Moses or a David could do that. This also means that he's the unapproachable God that we saw way back in Exodus, thundering and lightning and earthquaking on the mountain. He's the unapproachable God who's a pillar of fire in the Exodus wilderness, a deafening storm and violent earthquake at Sinai. He's the God who told the people not to get too close lest they die. He is the God whose presence was so overwhelming that when the prophet Isaiah caught a vision of it, merely a vision of it, he cried out in terror at his own unworthiness and thought he was going to die. Jesus is that God. But notice how different the approach is this time to what we read last week in Exodus chapter 19. That leads us to the second word. God is the one who is here with us. We must never lose sight of that if we're to understand the Bible's message rightly. At the same time, God is with us. Which has kind of been the problem all along, right? How can God be with us? What do you do when the unapproachable approaches? The unapproachable God comes to us now in the eminently approachable form of a helpless infant child. There's probably few things that more naturally appeal to basic human instinct. Whether you're a man or a woman, a parent or not a parent, old or young, it doesn't matter. If you see a little helpless infant child and they're clearly in distress, everything in you just goes, ah! What can we do to help? What can I do to embrace? What can I do to care for? Because this child is so defenseless, so helpless, he or she needs somebody. That's the form in which the unapproachable God approaches at Christmas time. He's weak. He's utterly dependent on his parents. He has come to live life the way we live it, to hunger as we hunger, to thirst as we thirst. God has come to get sick the way we get sick. 
He's come to feel pain the way we feel pain. He's come to experience joy the way we can experience joy in a sin-broken world. He's come to experience heartache the way that we often experience heartache. He's come to be betrayed the way sometimes we are betrayed. He's come to lose loved ones the way we sometimes lose loved ones. He's come to die the way that we all eventually must die. This is what it means that God is with us. Like in every conceivable way, experientially and personally, walking with his rebellious people in their brokenness. He came to experience it all. That language is used many dozens of times in the Bible, that God is with his people. God will be with his people. And every time you look at the context of what it means, there are several different facets, but they're all kind of pointing to the same thing. When the Bible says God is with his people, it means that he will lead them to himself or to the promised land or to a better place. They'll use that language. Uh, Other times when the Bible says God is with his people, it means that he will guide through life's pitfalls, help you avoid the snares and the traps, closely related to getting to the place that he wants to lead us. It also means that God will protect his people from the attacks of their enemies, especially the ultimate enemy, Satan himself. I will be with them to protect them. You see, so I would lead them, I will guide them, I will protect them. I will be with them to teach them truth in the midst of a field of lies. God is a guide, God is a teacher, he's a lover of our souls, he's a provider of our deepest and greatest needs. He is a fellow experiencer of all life's ups and downs. He is an infant child on Christmas morning. God is with us. The unapproachable has approached in the most approachable way possible. An unimaginable cost to himself. And that's what makes us accessible to him and him accessible to us. Which actually leads us to that third word. God is with us. Let's not forget who that is. God is with us. Let's not forget that he's bridged the gap. But God is with us. So who's us? The Bible's answer to that has always been straightforward, not difficult to figure out at all. Us is God's people, which may not really be a helpful answer. Okay, <laughs> who are God's people? And perhaps surprisingly to some, when you read the Bible, it turns out that his people are not good people as opposed to bad people. The people that try real hard to live a good life, I'll be with them, but those nasty, ugly people, and I don't want anything to do with them. That's not, that's not the dividing line. It's also not a particular ethnic or religious group. I'll be with the Jewish people, but not anybody else. I'll be with white people, but not anybody else. I'll be with rich people, but not poor people. I'll be with poor people, but not rich people. I'll be with men, not women. I'll be with women, not men. It's none of those things. Actually, God's vision for his people in the language of the Bible is that they would be made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. People from all walks of life, all ethnic backgrounds, both genders, all age groups, all life experiences. So then who are God's people? Scripture tells us God's people are those whom he has called by name, who embrace his love and his guidance, his withness that we just talked about, fully, utterly, and without reservation. 
If that's you, man, it doesn't matter what's happened, who you've been, what you're like, what your background is. If that's you, God says, you're my people. Notice Joseph's reaction. He's a great model of this in the last couple of verses of our passage. Verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Remember what Joseph was going to do at the beginning when he discovered Mary was pregnant? He's like, this is over. This is done. I'm feeling betrayed. She's done something she should not do. I can't, all this kind of, so we're, I'm divorcing. Like he figures he understands the situation and he's going to take control and he's going to do what any other sensible man in his position, in his culture, in his day would have done. And then he gets one word from God and he chucks it all. Forget it. He chucks it all. This is my understanding of the situation, but God Almighty has said something different. I'm going to listen to him. This is what I would do. This is what my friends and neighbors would expect me to do, but forget it. I'm going to do what God wants. So he takes God at his word, which is a significant commitment for Joseph, by the way. He's about to marry a woman who is not unfaithful, but he only knows that because God said so, and tie himself to her for life. He utterly jettisons his previous plans to divorce her, And he takes her as his wife despite questions that that may raise amongst others around him. In short, Joseph is all in on God. That's who God is with. God says, I have made the way at unimaginable cost. I haven't waited for you to come 50 or even 10 or 5% of the way. I've come 100% of the way, an infinite gap you could not cross to be reconciled with you. Your role is to embrace that salvation. Go all in on me. Trust a God who would come this far from you. Friends, if you're here this morning and you have not embraced Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I just want to invite you this Christmas to consider that message from the Bible, maybe in a new and a fresh way. Who the Bible presents God and Jesus to be in relation to you and I, to to all of us. The reconciler that we need the only Savior who could save us, the one we've longed for. God made you in his own image. He loves you enough to come off the real mountain that is out of heaven and send his own son that so whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Christmas will change your destiny. Will you let it this year? What are you clinging to that's more important than that. I'd encourage you to come to Jesus, repenting of your sins, confessing him as your Lord, Savior, and King. Be reborn. Find life the way it was meant to be. Connect with God, the maker and lover of your precious soul. If you've got questions about what that means or how to do that, I'd encourage you to talk to myself or one of our other church leaders. will be available after the service or maybe with another Christian you know, perhaps that you came to church with this morning. That's the greatest message of Christmas for us. And one final word for for those of us that may have made that commitment to Christ already in the past. We're already relying on him for our salvation and reconciliation with God, but but we find ourselves um, running, sometimes stumbling, into yet another Christmas. Another time to sing the familiar songs and rehearse the familiar story. And it's good. It's not like we don't want to do it, but we all know familiarity can breed contempt, right? As the old saying goes. 
If you find yourself so familiar with the story that, that you're engaging in all the Christmas activities, but the needle of your heart is just not moving very much, then may I encourage you to pray and to ponder. Pray, first of all. Um, maybe, maybe there's something that is keeping you from the full impact of the gospel. Are you loving lesser things more than Christ? Are you just so over busy you haven't given yourself time to even reflect on your Savior? Is there some sin that's got a hold of your life? Or maybe you've just been hit with so much kind of tragedy and heartache lately that you just feel like you're spinning. Whatever it is, like bring that to God. If it's a sin, confess it. If it's a need, admit it. Let's bring that to our Savior and pray that he will allow you to see him for who he is with a fresh vision. Pray and then, then ponder. Ponder. Ponder God. Ponder God with. Ponder God with us. Emmanuel is the name at Christmas time. That's the name of Christmas. And it's one that will change us. You know, our Christmas Eve service is really designed for that purpose. I want to invite you all back here Tuesday evening because it's a time for us to come together in just an informal way. It's kind of the loose equivalent of the family just gathering around the Christmas tree in the living room uh, on Christmas Eve to just read the Christmas story. And so what's going to happen is we're going to come together and we're just going to enjoy being in each other's presence. Uh, Some of our members are just going to read through elements of the Christmas story. The Bible is just going to tell the story without commentary. Uh, We're going to do a lot of singing as we sing Christmas songs that reflect those great truths. And the whole point of that is just that we can enjoy being together as a church family in the presence of this great God. To to set aside the other stuff of Christmas for one evening, not that it's bad, uh, but to set aside the gifts and the dinners and the family gatherings and all the issues at work for a moment and just focus in for that hour on who Christ is, God with us. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you acknowledging that you are, you're just mind-boggling to me. When I read what's in the Bible, I understand it. I can study it. I can parse it out. I can get the accurate grammatical and historical definitions. I can preach it. I can proclaim it. And when I stop and really think about it, it blows my mind that the unapproachable God has approached us as a baby to make a way for us to be reconciled. Jesus, I pray that you would make yourself great in the hearts and the minds of every man and woman in this room today. Wherever we're all at, there's so many of us, and we have hundreds of different stories. We're coming from hundreds of different places. But I thank you for every person that's here. You made each one in your image. You care deeply, and I pray that you would move in every heart here, helping us to see and respond to you for who you are. God, even as we sing now um, a couple of more songs to close out our service, I pray that you would receive our song as worship from hearts that are so grateful for what we've seen you to be in Scripture, what we've experienced you to be in our own lives. Receive the worship of a grateful people now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? And we're going to go out singing.